want to ask you to do is open your Bibles to the book of Philippians this morning. Uh, We are in a series that we've entitled Relentless Joy, and it's a book about finding joy amidst all circumstances and difficulties of life. And this morning we pick up in Philippians chapter 3, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11 this morning. So if you haven't gotten there yet, turn in your Bibles to to that passage, and that's where we're going to camp out uh, this morning. Well, I want to begin my message this morning uh, by asking you a question. Are you surviving or thriving? Families all across our country have been in what we call a shelter in place. Now right away, two scenarios come to mind when we think about that. For some, it's an awesome moment in the history and life of us as a family. Uh, We get to play board games. We get to enjoy incredible family time together. We're baking cookies and, and other bakery treats. We're enjoying life together through movie nights and household projects. This is an opportunity for us to slow down as a family. And still others, those words, shelter in place, uh, those are ominous words. Those are scary words. If we really wanted to admit it today, our family is in a place of incredible chaos. Instead of spending time with one another, we want nothing to do with each other. In fact, we're white-knuckling every moment of this experience. For some of you, this picture uh, that I found will bring great solace to your soul that you're not the only one. Look around that family room full of socks and, and laundry, chaos ensuing. I found uh, this checklist of how to stay sane uh, during this uh, time of shelter in place. Notice the, the daily checklist. Drink coffee. Stay focused. Be positive. Don't freak out. I like these. Remember that stabbing people is wrong. And don't forget to wear pants. Some of you during these weeks are simply surviving. You're just trying to hang on. Now for the Badals, we've enjoyed our time. We love family time. Uh, We have caught up on all homework. In fact, we're doing extra credit in our house. We've written letters to pen pals, to people we know and don't know, just encouraging them and, and loving them in this time of isolation. Uh, We've done some nifty crafts together as a family. We just love doing family time together. And because we don't believe in TV or Netflix or any of those externals that so many of you rely upon, uh, we thought that instead of doing any of that on an evening after dinner, that the five of us would serenade you with a song we came up with. Uh, I know you wouldn't believe it, so I've recorded it for your pleasure. Take a look. describes you today? Amidst the COVID crisis, are you surviving or are you thriving? 
Now, let's be honest. With all kidding aside, these are difficult days. These are days that really do try men's souls. These are moments of panic and and worry. Uh, These are times where we are filled with anxiety and fear. And I'm so glad that as a church we've been studying this book of Philippians. Because Paul, who is a lover of God and a lover of people, takes time to grace the people of God in Philippi and remind them amidst all difficulties of life that you and I could find joy. A joy that is unspeakable, a joy that that will help you in times of chaos and difficult circumstances. And so Paul knew this about the people in Philippi. Life for a long time had gone well for them. They had come to know Christ, they had built a healthy church, but now things began to become more difficult. Being a follower of Jesus Christ wasn't easy. To know what it means to thrive and not simply survive. You see, surviving and thriving are two different things. I've I've written some things down to help you understand the difference between the two. You see, surviving is living a life of maintenance, whereas thriving is living a life of abundance. Surviving is taxing, while thriving is terrific. You see, surviving is about your duty. But thriving is about delighting in what God is doing in your midst. Surviving is like the children of Israel in the wilderness, while thriving is them living in the promised land. I asked my uh, son, my, my third son, Luke, what he thought about that phrase, surviving and thriving. And I love what he said. He said, surviving in life is simply living life, while thriving in life means loving life. You see, the Bible is clear that for followers of Jesus Christ, we are called to thrive in this world, not simply survive. But it isn't always going to be easy. In fact, in John 10.10, we are told by Jesus himself that the devil comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But Jesus says, that's not how I want you to live. I don't want you to live trying to survive the schemes of the devil. No, I want you to thrive. And he says there that he, Jesus, has come to give us life, not an ordinary life, not just a mediocre life, but a life in all abundance. You see, what Jesus came to give us was the ability to thrive. Now, I know these days have been difficult with COVID and with these quarantines, but let me ask a more serious question this morning. And it doesn't have to do with how you're doing bottled up together in your home. It has to do with you spiritually. Are you surviving spiritually or are you thriving? God has created human beings, you and I, to thrive. And the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3 gives us a roadmap. He gives us guidelines as to what it means to thrive as a follower of Jesus Christ. Let's look at what the text begins with. Turn with me to the first verse of chapter 3 of Philippians. He says the following, 
Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe to you. The first way that you and I will find a life that thrives instead of simply surviving is that we must learn an important biblical concept. What's the concept? The concept is that you and I would rejoice. Now, Paul has said this over and over and over again. In fact, he will say it nearly 20 different times in this four-chapter letter. Now, why would Paul tell us over and over and over again to rejoice? Because Paul knows something that we don't. Paul knows something that we experience. And that is at times, especially when life doesn't go the way we want it to, it is easy to go into survival mode than into thriving. And the way we move from survival to thriving is the mechanism, is the emotion, is the gift of God that we call joy. And so Paul says, listen, it is no trouble for me to remind you again and again and again that you are to rejoice. It's a command. You're to do this amidst all circumstances, amidst all difficulties. And Paul recognizes that there will be times in our lives where we won't feel very joyful. And for some right now, that's where you're at. Amidst the cancellations, amidst the quarantines, amidst the changes of our lives, it is hard for us to be joyful. But Paul wants to remind us that this command of being joyful doesn't rely on circumstances, but on God. As we approached this series earlier this year at the Sugar Grove campus, it was my great desire to share a definition of what joy was because we many times uh, get ourselves worked up into thinking that happiness is joy, and they're not. They're very different things. In fact, happiness is based on circumstances. So when circumstances don't go well, then you're not happy. But joy is deeper than that. Joy is more profound than that. In fact, in her book, Choose Joy Because Happiness Isn't Good Enough, Kay Warren says the following. She says that joy is the settled assurance that God is in control of all the details of my life. I need to hear that this morning. I need to know that amidst all of this difficulty, all of these troubles, all of these circumstances that are flying about me, that God is in control. Do you believe that? Second, it is the quiet confidence that ultimately everything is going to be all right. Do you believe that today? Do you believe that no matter how bad the stock market is, no matter how bad the economy uh, continues to struggle along, no matter uh, what happens in the here and now, that God has a plan and that he does all things well. You see, that's where we have joy, knowing that God is going to take everything that comes our way and use it for our good and for his glory. Third, she says... That it is a determined choice 
to praise God in all things. Now, that's easy when everything's going well. But as we as a country, we as a people, we as a world struggle with these new trials and tribulations, will we make the decision to trust and honor him and to allow ourselves to be filled with joy? This is the concept that Paul wants to remind his Philippian audience about, and he wants to remind us through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit the same truth. We are to rejoice not because things are going bad, but because we have a God who takes bad things and makes them good. Now, right away, as we get to verse 2, it's like storm clouds start to come on the horizon. Like these ominous musical tones begin to take over. Rejoice in the Lord always. Be reminded of that. But then Paul gives us Two different things that steal our joy, if you will, two kill joys that put us back into survival mode instead of thriving in a life and relationship with Jesus Christ. These two are going to be my second and third point because we need to understand that there are some things we need to be careful of. And notice in in verse 2, He tells us very clearly, look out for counterfeits. Look out for counterfeits. Notice verse 2. He says, look out three different times. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Now, right away we recognize Paul is sharing a word of warning. Paul wants to stop the listener in their tracks, and he wants to make sure that they recognize that there is danger looming. And so he says, look out, or beware, or danger. He's concerned for those around him. When I read this verse, what comes to mind is the uh, old sitcom, Lost in Space, it was a story of a, of a space-traveling family that finds themselves on a deserted uh, alien planet. And there was a young boy, Will Robinson. And, and he would go out and he would explore and see all that was going on uh, on this new planet he was a part of. And there would be adventures along the way. And he had a companion with him. That companion was the robots. And Robot would go, and one of the things that Robot would do on these journeys with young Will is that he would uh, keep him out of danger. And the way that Will knew he was in danger was that the Robot would begin to shake abruptly and begin to announce, danger, Will Robinson, danger. And he would literally go berserk. This is what Paul is trying to communicate. There is danger looming, Christian, and this danger will rob you of your joy. It will keep you from thriving in life. Now, notice a couple things. First, he calls them dogs. Now, I want you to get out of your head that little dog or that big dog that you're sharing the couch with right now. This is not a domesticated pet. 
These were packs of dogs that had no home that would roam about the streets of Philippi. And because they did not have an owner, because it did not have a master, these dogs were scavengers. And so it went about, these dogs, going about the city looking for prey. And once it found what it was looking for, it would devour it. But there's a second element to these rabid dogs, and that is that they were diseased. And so if you got bit by the dog, the bite was the least of your concerns. It was the infection that would come as a result of you being in contact with these dogs. So what Paul is articulating is these false teachers, these counterfeiters who are selling you a life that they say will cause you to thrive, really they're going to cause you your destruction. And he says they devour and they're diseased. So stay away. Now notice what Paul says is quite uh, significant. In three ways he gives three slanderous statements about them. He calls them dogs. He calls them evildoers, and he says that they are those who, who mutilate. That is, they devour and they bring about spiritual disease that causes you nothing but pain and sorrow. The opposite of what Jesus Christ came to bring us and what Paul was preaching about this joy that we can have in the Lord. You see, these teachers had come into the Philippian church and they were preaching things that caused the Christian to live a life of duty instead of delight. And there are some things that we can understand about them. Notice that he says that we need to look out for them and to be on guard. Now, what they were teaching is a little different than what we might come into contact with today, but there are counterfeiters out there today who are teaching and telling us things that will rob us at the end of the day of our joy. Let's beware of teachers who maximize you and minimize Jesus. Beware of teachers who maximize you and minimize Jesus. These false teachers were called Judaizers, and they were Jewish followers who had become followers of Jesus Christ. But the problem was is they had a chip on their shoulder. They thought as Jews they were the greatest thing in the world. And because of that, they could malign other nationalities. Because of that, they could speak ill of other nationalities. They could have a superiority complex with regards to other people. And so they looked at the uh, Grecian Philippians with contempt. They looked at other Gentiles with contempt. They spoke all kinds of terrible things about others because they believed that the Jews were the greatest nation in the world. And let's just be honest, as we read the Old Testament, God blessed the Jews. And God had a special relationship with the Jews. But the Jews had taken that and had made it more about them than about God. So they were supposed to be a blessing to all other nations they were called to serve and, and to be the uh, light in the dark world around them. But instead, they took the blessings of God and made it about themselves. Listen to me very carefully, church. We have lots of teachers in our world today. 
in so-called Christian circles who make Christianity about you and me and less about Jesus. There are places that are full, even uh, today, listening to preachers who tell you how great you are, how important you are, and how important I am. We're champions. The potential we have, our destiny, we are just untapped potential again and again. And that sounds good, and that makes us feel good, and that makes us feel special. But, but can I just tell you right now, what the Bible says about us is that we're all sinners, and we all fall short of God's glory. That within us, according to Romans 1, we're God-haters, We're disobedient to parents. We create ways of doing evil. And and while there's still some good to us in the fact that because of God's common grace, you and I are not as bad as we could be, the Bible says even our most righteous deeds are but filthy rags. And so be careful of teachers who who don't tell you what the Bible says, that you and I, because of our sin and because of our choices, are at war with God. And because of that, without Christ in our lives, we are unable to do nothing. That's why Paul says, I have no confidence in who I am. I'm nothing. But notice in verse 3 he says that it is my opportunity to glory in Jesus Christ. Listen, be careful of teachers who make you the important part of the story and Jesus a second player. Biblical teaching is teaching that makes much of Jesus and little of us. Second, be careful of teachers who say holiness is about doing stuff instead of what Christ has done. So circumcision was their big thing. It wasn't the only thing, but it was a big thing. And let's be honest, to to go through the process of circumcision meant you were all in in many ways. But circumcision was just the tip of the spear. There were other things. There was celebrating and remembering the Sabbath. There were the dietary laws of not eating pork and and shellfish and, and other things. And there were all manner of laws that God had used in the time of Moses and through the Old Testament to lead his people and to give them opportunity to obey. But Christ had come. And Christ had come and he had fulfilled the law that now, as followers of Jesus Christ, we no longer needed to do that. We needed to now rest in what Christ has done, not try to get our way into good standing and favor with God. Now again, we don't deal with a lot of the Mosaic law and all of those issues and traditions today, but many a people who are standing in places like I am today will tell you that the way to heaven is by you doing good works. And some of you are sitting right now and you're watching this and you've got this idea about what it means to get to heaven. That my good deeds will outweigh my bad deeds. Let me tell you something. That's not what the Bible says. The Apostle Paul makes it clear. 
For by grace you are saved through faith, that it's not of yourselves, not by works, that any of us could boast. It is about what Jesus Christ has done for you and for me. And it is our job to trust in that, to rely on that, to believe in that, and to rest in the fact that what Christ did brought us into a right standing with our Father in heaven. I love what the hymn writer says when he says, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. So what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus Christ? It is to rest and rely and believe that Jesus Christ came, that he died on the cross for our sins, and that through that, through faith, you and I might believe and trust in him and enter into a relationship. That's what Paul says in verse 3. So he says, for we, those who trust Christ and believe in Christ, who worship the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. A child of God, a follower of Jesus Christ, says it's not about me. It's not about the good things I've done, but is wholly on the grace and the mercy that Jesus Christ demonstrated to you and me when we were still sinners. Beware. Be careful. Now, Paul doesn't stop there. And he says there's yet another killjoy. And that second killjoy is our third point. And that is we've got to let go of misplaced confidence. You see, these Judaizers were confident. They were bold in saying, I'm holy. I'm righteous. Let me show you my resume about what makes me a holy individual. Now that is going on today. There are many people who masquerade, whether through social media or through their words or how they act. Look at me, look how holy I am based on external things. And yet, there's been very little change in the heart. So in verses 4 through 6, Paul closes out his words about false teachers by saying, you're not going to thrive in life. If you're dependent on your spiritual resume. And Paul recognized this because he had come to grips with his own spiritual resume. And it was a great one. Paul was the head of his class. Paul had gotten first place in trying to work his way into God's favor. But notice what Paul says in verses 4 through 6. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. In fact, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, Paul says, I have more. I'm the great ribbon winner of the day. He goes on, well, where's his confidence at? Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. Seven things. He says, look at my resume. 
I worked my way to God. I worked my way into his good pleasure. I towed the company line, and I have done it. And notice the phrase, I have done it blamelessly. You see, that's what all of us want. All of us want to be known as being blameless. We want the guilt taken off of us. We want to be vindicated. And Paul said, listen, I did all of that stuff, and it left me unsatisfied. I worked my way into God's good graces, and it left me dry. I did all of these holy external things, things I thought were important, and it left me empty. And Paul says, I miss the point. I put confidence in things that I shouldn't have. And you know when it dawned on Paul? That day that he was heading to Damascus and he saw Jesus Christ and he learned very quickly that what he thought was righteousness was sin. That what he thought he was doing as a faithful follower of the law made him an enemy of Christ. And some of you right now, you're doing all of these religious things. And you think because you're doing all of these religious things, it's putting you in a good stead with God. And I want you to know, all it's doing is making you an enemy of God. If those things are done apart from faith and trust in Jesus Christ, then they're all for naught. And Paul says, listen, these things that I did, they're garbage. They're rubbish. They're worthless. Now, what makes us think that these things, if they're rubbish and garbage and worthless, or what makes these things give us such confidence? Well, again, circumcision, that doesn't do it for us today. Being a part of a particular tribe of Israel, that doesn't do anything for us today. A lot of what Paul talks about doesn't translate in our day and age. But let me give you very quickly three things that do translate. Three things that I think many of us use as misplaced confidence when it comes to our holy living. First of all, we use categories. What I mean by that is we categorize holiness and we categorize sin and we do this by ourselves. We don't use the Bible to do it. We do it ourselves. And so what we do is we say, all right, it's kind of like a game of Jeopardy. This, this thing is worth 100 points, and this thing's worth 50 points, and this thing's worth 25 points. And isn't it funny that all the things you do are worth 100 points? But then on the sin side of it, there, there are sins that are worth 25 points and sins worth 50 points and sins worth 100 points. And every one of those sins that you sin is a negative and so you lose points along the way. And isn't it surprising that you don't have any of the minus 100 points? You see, when we categorize sins, we look at other people's sins, and we give them the worst marks. And when they have lives of holiness, we give them the smallest amounts of holiness. But when it comes to us, we give ourselves the highest points. And when it comes to our sin, we say, oh, they're just little teeny weeny sins. They're not that bad. Uh, you know, of course we're going to struggle with these things. And categories do us no good. 
They make us feel better, but when it comes to our relationship with God, it keeps us from thriving because we're living a lie. The second one that brings misplaced confidence is the idea of connections. And how this works is you say, you know, yeah, I'm close to God. Well, tell me how. Well, my wife or my husband, they love Jesus. When the church is open, they're there. They're serving. When I get up in the morning, they're reading the Bible. Whenever I hear them talking, they're talking about Jesus. And surely because I'm married to them, I'm in good with God. Maybe there's a teenager that's... Uh, listening to me today, and you're sitting there and you're saying, yeah, I've got a great relationship with God. Well, why? Because my mom and dad have a great relationship with God. I grew up in a Christian home, and, and because of osmosis, their righteousness has become my righteousness. Or maybe it's because you attend a great church, and you've got wonderful pastors and, and elders and, and leaders. And you've got incredible programming and ministry going on. And because the Word of God is central at Village Bible Church, you think by just being a part of this body makes you a, devout, a devoted follower of Jesus Christ. Paul negates this. When he says later on in the text, notice that he goes on and he says in verse 8, He says that what it's all about is him knowing Christ Jesus. And and notice in verse 8, the little word there, as my Lord. You cannot, by connection, have a relationship with Jesus Christ through someone else. Paul tells Timothy that there's one mediator between God and man, and that person is Christ Jesus. And so on the day of judgment, listen to me very carefully, on the day of judgment, your mom, your dad, your spouse, your pastor will not be with you when Jesus Christ asks you, why should I allow you into my heaven? You're going to be on your own. And you can come up with all the good things you did and all of the wonderful notes that you wrote during the COVID crisis and all of the groceries you bought for people. And what Jesus will say is, your righteous deeds are but filthy rags. It's not good enough. And your confidence is going to be built on that. And sadly, your eternal destiny will be misplaced confidence. And it will do you no good on the judgment day. And so what are we to do? Where are we to go? If God wants us to thrive, how do we thrive as followers of Jesus Christ? The answer is simple. It involves loving Jesus Christ. Paul goes on in verses 7 through 11, and he says the following, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake I have suffered in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, but one that comes from Christ through faith, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I might attain the resurrection of the dead. You want to thrive in this world? 
You want to thrive in your spirituality? Get rid of the counterfeits. Get rid of the misplaced confidence. And find the joy that is found in a relationship with Jesus Christ. It means embracing Him and loving Him. Well, what does that involve? Let me close this thing out very quickly with three ways that we embrace Jesus. Number one, through humility. Through humility. Paul says, whatever I've gained, I count loss. Whatever I thought I could add to my account, it's rubbish, it's garbage, it's worthless. These are words of humility. Paul is saying, I am nothing, and he is everything. And that's where it begins. You and I, if we want to thrive in this world, listen, you need to recognize, and I need to recognize that there is a God, and you and I are not him. And so our job is to bow the knee to him and worship him and glory in him and praise him for all that he is and all that he's done, knowing that apart from him, you and I can do nothing. It involves a new priority. We humble ourselves, and now the new priority, listen very carefully, isn't how do I make myself better? It isn't, look at all the great things I can do. It isn't, how can I make myself great so that I will be known and and remembered? Paul says, my new priority, notice in the text, is to know Christ Jesus. To know him. That is to experience him. To have a relationship with him to go where he goes, to do what he does. When I was a freshman in college, I met my future wife, Amanda. And she was in the second semester uh, picking out her classes, and we had been dating for a while. And because I loved her, I wanted to be with her all the time. And so I majored in what she majored in. I went to the classes she went to. I forgot about what I was doing. My priority was to be with her at all times and in all ways. I wanted to be as close to her as possible and listen very carefully. That is what we are called to do as followers of Christ. We are called to know Christ. We are called to experience Christ. We are called to do life together with Christ so that we may know him and we may experience him and we may enjoy him and the abundance and the thriving that he promises to give us no matter our circumstances or troubles. What that then does is it gives us the greatest of opportunity. The greatest opportunity And that great opportunity is that we might find not a righteousness of our own, but that we might find salvation. When we humble ourselves and we make big of Jesus, and we make Jesus central to all that we are, in that moment of confession, Christ placed upon us not his wrath, but his righteousness. And by giving us his righteousness, we now have the opportunity to partner with him, not only in his death, and that yes, will mean we may have to suffer from time to time, but it will mean on that great and glorious day, we will share in his resurrection. And all the benefits and all of the blessings that come 
as a result of that. So let me ask you again. Are you surviving or are you thriving? God created us to be in a relationship with Him. Stop trying to do it on your own. Stop trying to uh, do the do good and fail syndrome of life. Give your life to Jesus. And when you do, God will give you joy. And God will give you peace. And God will bring about the greatest amount of contentment that this world has always been looking for. Because it is in that moment when we give our lives to Jesus Christ that we will experience for the first time what real life, what real living, what thriving really is. The devil wants you to struggle. The devil wants you to go backwards. But Christ wants to give you joy. And he wants to give you new life in him. Will you give your life to him? Will you bow your knees to him and say, it's all about you. It's not about me. That's why Jesus came. He came to be our Messiah, to seek and to save those who are lost. Before I have Pastor Steve come and pray, I want you to take some time and I want you to contemplate and think through what has been shared. Are you making much of Jesus or much of yourself? Christian, confess that. And if you've never entered into a relationship with Jesus Christ, pray to him now, asking him to come into your life so that you may be saved.